0: Take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 2 as we continue our study here in Hebrews chapter 2, the epistle of Paul the Apostle to the Hebrews, right? All right, we won't get into that tonight. I want you to take note of the most important phrase in these verses here. We're going to look at verse one through four. Let's look at verses one through four here. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which have we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip For if the word spoken by the angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders, and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost, according to his will. Now the phrase that I want you to look at in these four verses particularly is at the end of verse 1, lest at any time we should let them slip, or lest at any time we should drift away from them. The picture here is of a drifting boat with no sails, no motor, no oars, no rudder, no anchor. And at the mercy of the winds, the waves and the currents. Now there is an old story about a huge American eagle soaring high above Niagara River, spotting a carcass of an animal on a flow of ice. And the king of the air dropped down and leisurely began to devour his free lunch. And true, the treacherous current was swiftly bearing him toward the dangerous falls, but wasn't he safe? Even still, on the ice, when he went over the brink, he could just simply stretch out his great pinions and sail safely away. No doubt he had done it many, many times before during the span of his bird life. And so on he drifted. And eventually the roar of the falls became deafening, and the swirling white mist of the water at the bottom of the falls rose like a blinding cloud to remind him that lunchtime was over. He stretched out his long, powerful wings and began to flap them in a rising motion, and nothing happened. He was not conscious of it, but while he was drifting and dining, his sharp talons had become embedded in the ice flow and then frozen solid thanks to the spray of water, the bitter cold, and the fierce wind of the day. And no matter how hard he struggled, it was to no avail. He had delayed too long. The swift current swept him over the brink of the falls and into the abyss of doom. He had drifted to death. And how like millions of poor souls in our day, They are feasting on the rotting refuse of the world, thinking that sometime before death they will get right with God and prepare for eternity, and they can repent at any time, surely. But then death strikes with sudden swiftness, and it is too late. They are hurled into eternity, unprepared, unsaved, still in their sins. They had drifted to death. Someone has defined neglect as careless indifference. And that's a very fitting definition when used in a spiritual sense. Lest at any time we should let them slip or let them drift away. The writer of Hebrews issues a strong warning to all such who are carelessly drifting. He's clearly and convincingly told us about how Christ is better than the prophets and he's better than the angels, now he stops to sound an alarm for unsaved unsaved professors among his readers, those who might be thinking of returning to Judaism. And this is the first, as we're going to see here in this book, the first of several great warnings. It's the peril of drifting. And I want you to notice with me three aspects of this warning. First of all, imperative duty. Verse one says, therefore. Therefore, which means for this cause. And we've heard it said many, many times, no doubt. You come to the word therefore and you need to find out what it's there for. Certainly a good suggestion, a good guide in studying God's word. A therefore always refers back to something just said which is pertinent to the truth the writer is advancing or emphasizing. And in this case, the idea is that God has spoken to us in His Son who is immensely, immeasurably, infinitely superior to both the prophets of old, that is, the earthly messengers, and the angels of life, the heavenly messengers. Listen, we ought to listen to the Son of God if Lot listened to the angels at Sodom, if children of Abraham listened to Moses, if Israel listened to David, if the queen of Sheba listened to Solomon, if Nineveh listened to Jonah, how much more should we listen to Jesus Christ, God's only begotten son? We need to hear him. We need to heed him. We need to obey him. We need to follow him. Yes, we need to listen to him. And the words we ought here, literally mean we must. The writer is emphasizing a logical requirement. The clear implication is that we will be in big, big trouble if we don't pay attention to what the Son of God says. It's always dangerous not to give heed to authoritative alarms. We have warnings about hurricanes, not in Wisconsin, thankfully. But we might have a warning about a tornado. You know, when people do not pay attention to authoritative warnings and they let those warnings slip, many times the result is fatal. And how, like poor sinners who are repeatedly warned about death and damnation only to put off or ignore the divine warnings until sudden destruction comes and it is forever too late. And the difference is that the National Weather Service and human authorities, although they have reliable information, do not know for sure what the extent of the damage will be. But I'm telling you tonight that God does know, and this is a warning we cannot afford to ignore. Proverbs twenty nine and verse one says, "He that being often reproved hardeneth his neck, shall suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy." Now, I want you to notice there those words "without remedy." The Hebrew writer, the book, the writer of the Hebrews here says to give the more earnest heed. The picture here is the exact opposite of the reaction of the king who had prepared a marriage feast for his son, received the invited guest. And Jesus said in Matthew 22, verse 5, But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. And we need to hold fast to the unusual firmness to what God's Son has said and don't make light of the gospel or light of of God's faithful warnings. Hold on to the unusual firmness of what? To the things which we have heard. These things are the things that Christ has spoken concerning salvation and eternity and judgment and hell, heaven, eternal life and matters that pertain to living the Christian life down here. I think this is sound advice. It's sound advice for all professors of salvation, both saved and lost. You know that you can be a professor of salvation and still be lost? You see, there are many who profess to be Christians, but in reality, they're not saved because they're not trusting in the shed blood of Jesus Christ, but they're trusting in their good works or they're trusting in their religion or someone else's religion. And if you claim to be a Christian tonight, here's a command of the Word of God for you. Study to show thyself approved unto God a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth. Be a dedicated, zealous Bible student. Study the Word. Pour over it. Meditate upon it. Wallow in it. Practice it. And if you're not a Christian, obey his commands about repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ we have here, first of all, an imperative duty. Secondly, we have imminent danger in verses 2 and 3. For if the word spoken by the angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? I want you to notice here, there is an argument of the past, summed up in the phrase, if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, all that the angels predicted and promised came to pass exactly as they said, and in light of this book's uh, uh, theme, the primary Reference here is obviously to the old covenant, the law. And we're told in Galatians 3 and verse 19 that the law was ordained by the angels in the hand of the mediator. And Stephen reminded the Jewish leaders before they stoned him to death that Moses met with the angel which spake to him in the Mount Sinai and with our father who received the living oracles to give unto us that is the law. And yet the reference should be broadened to include all of the Old Testament occasions when angels spoke to men and what they said was steadfast. That is, it all came to pass. For example, you look back in Genesis chapter 19 and the angels told Lot about the destruction of Sodom because of its great sin against Jehovah God and it was fulfilled in detail when the Lord rained upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven and he overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities that which grew up upon the ground. then there was the message of the angel Gabriel to Daniel concerning the seventy-sevens. Determine upon thy people and upon thy holy city in Daniel chapter 9. And what I'm saying here is that the words of the angels to man never failed. Not once. And certainly the words of the one better than the angels can never fail. What he has promised will come to pass just as surely and just as truly. When angels spoke, every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, it tells us here. The writer uses the same argument in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 29, which we will examine more later. It's enough to say at this point that sin does not pay. Every sin finds you out. Every sin pays justly. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7 and 8 says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. That is the unstoppable, inflexible law of the harvest. We sometimes talk about him being a loving God, a faithful God, an ever-present God, and all that's true. But he's also an unmocked God. And so that is the argument of the past in verse 2. There's also the argument of the present. In verse 3, we could say here, or we can see here, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Uh, There's a danger in drifting because salvation is so great. The word so here is express, expresses the unfathomable depth. You know, you've heard maybe someone describe something. Boy, it was so big. And that was, uh, that we went on this ride and it was so fun. Well, this is even a greater so. It's compared with the so in John 3.16, where we're told God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Now, why is this salvation so great? Well, it's summed up in nine reasons. Uh, Very quickly here, it's great because of its superior revealer. Who is the revealer? Of course, it's Jesus Christ. It's great because it's cost. 1 Corinthians 15:3 and 4, For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. It's uh, so great because of its simple conditions. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's so great because of its duration. John 10, 28. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. It's so great because of its value. Matthew 16, 26. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? It's great because of its guarantee. Matthew eight, verse thirty eight and thirty nine, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's so great in its power. John eight, thirty six, if the Son therefore shall make you free, he ye shall be free indeed. It's so great because of its universality. Romans 1, six, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to some who believe. Wait a minute. There's a different word there, isn't there? It's everyone that believeth. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then down in chapter 10 and verse 13, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then it's so great because of its sufficiency. Acts 13:39 and by him all that believe are justified from all things from which ye should not be justified by the law of Moses what a redemption no wonder it's called so great salvation and nor is there the corresponding statement surprising in light of its greatness how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation And someone has aptly described this as the unanswerable question. Here is a question that cannot be answered. The Bible has no answer for it. The church has no answer for it. Preachers have no answer for it. Angels have no answer. Heaven and hell has no answer. Satan has no answer. In fact, God himself cannot answer this question. There is no answer. And so it is no wonder that the writer of Hebrews describes neglecting salvation as drifting to death. What a foolish gamble it is. I'm reminded of Mary Ross of Toronto, Canada. She successfully completed 107 parachute jumps, gambling with her life each time she did, and on her 108th jump, the paper showed her struggling vainly to untangle the lines of her chute as she fell more than 2,000 feet toward the earth, and she finally succeeded in cutting free about about 200 feet from the ground, and she pulled the cord of her reserve, but there wasn't enough time. Now, I don't doubt that parachute jumping, especially free-fall Parachute jumping is really exciting. It's probably thrilling. Anybody want to sign up for going tomorrow? It's going to be a beautiful day. But you know, it's highly dangerous. And every time someone jumps out of a plane, they really are gambling with their life. The fact that Mrs. Ross had jumped successfully 107 times did not rule out her death on the 108th leap into space. And for sinners to be gambling with their souls is something like that, only much more serious. And the fact that someone rejects Christ 107 times and still has 108th opportunity does not mean they can successfully reject Christ again and be assured of yet another opportunity to miss hell. There comes a time when God determines he will tolerate no more rebellion against his word or his son. And that soul's destiny is in damnation and it's determined eternally. There is an imperative duty. There is an imminent danger. But there's one more aspect to this warning, and it's the indisputable demonstration. Again, verse 3 says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. I want you to notice the phrase there in verse 3, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord. Now that's really kind of a restatement of what was in verse 1 and 2. The Son has spoken in the four Gospels and the early part of Acts, as well as in the book of Revelation. Notice there, spoken by the Lord. He spoke through His miraculous birth and His sinless life. No mere man could have been born as Jesus was born. No mere human being could live the life that he lived. It was a miracle. A miraculous birth and a sinless life. And that speaks volumes. He spoke with simple statements. For example, he said there, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give him his life a ransom for many. And of course, one of the greatest statements of, you'll find is in John chapter 3, beginning in verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And then he said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death into life. And one of the greatest and yet most simplest statements is in John chapter 14, where he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. He has spoken. He spoke through his simple statements, and he spoke through his supernatural miracles. He was speaking when he opened the eyes of blind Bartimaeus, and when he cast out the demons from the maniac at Gadara, Fulfilling Isaiah's prediction about the Messiah, the servant of Jehovah, in Isaiah 42 and verse 6 and 7, where it says, I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness, and I will hold thine hand and will keep thee and give thee a covenant of the people for a light of the Gentiles to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison, and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. Would anyone deny that he spoke through his raising of Jairus' daughter, and the widow Nain's son, and of course his dear friend Lazarus, who had been dead and buried for four days. He spoke through his supernatural miracles. He spoke through heavenly illustrations. He spoke through the story of two men who went up to the temple to pray, and the Pharisee and the publican, and, how, and why the good man was lost and the bad man was saved. He spoke through the account of the rich man and the beggar Lazarus and how their roles in life were reversed in eternity because one repented and the other didn't. He spoke in the parable of the farming fool who prepared so well for life, but he neglected preparation for eternity. He spoke through the parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. Not only in what the Lord said, But it was confirmed by the disciples. And the text here says, So great salvation was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. Who heard him? Well, that refers to the rest of New Testament, especially the book of Acts. Most of the writers of this new covenant were eyewitnesses of Christ. They were eyewitnesses to his miracles. They were listeners to his original teachings. Nothing was done or said without them being present. And so they confirmed it. It was confirmed by Peter through his sermon at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. It was confirmed by Peter through his sermon at the beautiful gate in Acts chapter 3. It was confirmed by Peter again at his defense before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4. It was confirmed by Stephen through his defense before the council in Acts chapter 7. In addition to the words of Christ and the confirmation of the disciples, there was the witness Given by the Father. Again, verse 4 says, God also bearing them witness. How did he do that? Well, he bore witness by signs and wonders. When Jesus began his public ministry and was baptized in the river Jordan, the Father endorsed him as he came up out of the water. It tells us in Matthew chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and, lo, the heavens were open unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him, and, lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Maybe the greatest confirmation by the Father through signs and wonders was at the end of His Son's ministry at the crucifixion. Matthew chapter 27 verse 45. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom and the earth did quake and the rocks did, rocks rent. And the graves were opened, and the many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection, went into the holy city and appeared unto many. Now when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly and saying, This, truly this, was the Son of God. And he also bore witness with divers miracles which he performed through the apostles. One example was the healing of the impotent man through Peter in Acts chapter 3. Another example was when Paul raised Eutychus from the dead at Troas, Acts chapter 20. Other accounts include Peter's deliverance from prison by the angel in Acts chapter 12, Philip's miraculous transition from the desert to Azotus in Acts chapter 8, Paul's healing of the crippled man at Lystra in Acts chapter 14, Paul's being bitten by a poisonous snake without any harmful effect in Acts chapter 28. And so these this indisputable demonstration given to us here. Now, It says here, therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by the angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape so great salvation, or if we neglect so great salvation? which at first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, God also bearing witness, both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. Now, you know, there comes a time in the year, and it's not quite here yet, okay? So don't panic. But there's coming a time... After the first of the year, when people start worrying about this little exercise of filing their income taxes, right? Income tax forms. And they start to uh, be concerned about, it, especially if they anticipate a refund, those thinking they're going to pay are putting off it off as long as possible, of course, and they wait way until April the 14th or so. I recently read of a fellow who was arrested for failing to file the income tax return for a certain year, and he was brought to trial. He was convicted. He was sentenced to prison. And during the time he was incarcerated, the U.S. District Attorney had the IRS agents fill out tax returns for this man, covering the year in question. And the the two following ones, they found he was eligible for a $400 refund. He had been imprisoned for evading taxes, and in reality, he hadn't owed them a single penny. But the government owed him. Yet he was imprisoned in a federal penitentiary along with hardened criminals. Now you say, "That's, that's terrible. But listen, our text tells us of a far greater tragedy, namely sinners being eligible. For a home in heaven through the atoning work of Jesus Christ at Calvary, then spending eternity incarcerated in hell because of their failure to receive Christ and be saved. And John chapter 3 and verse 36 sums it up. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. He that believeth not on the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. We dare not make that kind of mistake. Our text is about neglecting this so great salvation and it certainly includes all the lost. But I want you to remember that this warning is addressed to primarily professing Christians who are drifting to death. They think they're saved. They they say that they're saved. They're heading for an eternity without Christ in hell even though they claim to be Christians. Tonight, are you truly saved? Are you sure about it? Notice this warning is not directed to blasphemers, adulterers, and drunkards, and druggies, and rapists, and thieves, and murderers, and sodomites, and others whom we would consider notorious sinners, but is addressed to neglecters who delay a personal surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why the book of Hebrews has such a strong emphasis on immediate action. Don't procrastinate. I saw this sign somewhere and said, Procrastination is the art of keeping up with yesterday. That's a thought-provoking saying, but do you know that when it concerns salvation, yesterday is too late? 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 2 says, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. The drifting of delay can be deadly. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for...